This Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Hughes Network Systems, delivering innovation for civilian and military connectivity. It is time to expect more from your network. Today on Government Matters, a transformation in financial management at the Navy, the service's top money manager on how she's doing it. One of the toughest cross-agency priority goals gets new focus from the new administration. Leaders from VA and HUD on moving the needle on veteran homelessness. And the number one story of the week, big movement in the right direction in the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey. Government Matters starts right now. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching the weekend edition of Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm your host, Francis Rose. The Navy's claiming progress in all three areas of its financial audit. The service's financial management leader says the Navy's transforming the way it manages its money. Alale Jenkins is performing the duties of the Assistant Secretary of the Navy for Financial Management and Comptroller. Uh, Ms. Jenkins, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What is the current status of the audits of the three reporting entities inside the Navy, ma'am? Hi, Francis. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Um, it's been a long journey for us, uh, long journey and very rewarding. Uh, we have three ongoing audits going on at this point. Uh, this is the fourth year of the audit for the Navy and the fifth one um, for the Marine Corps. We've made significant progress over the past few years. We've learned a lot about ourselves. Um, we have a lot more work to do. Um, as I say, uh, the benefit of this financial statement audit is in the journey. Um, and um, it has brought forward uh, so much lessons learned um, that supports our readiness and warfighting mission directly, knowing exactly what we have, where they're at, and what location they're in. Um, so a lot more work to do, and uh, we are all charged up and ready to do more. You wrote recently about progress that you're making in the Marine Corps General Fund uh, toward a positive opinion. What's that progress look like? I am very confident that the Marine Corps will be the first military service that will get an opinion. They have worked so hard over many years. They have the support and the leadership uh, of the Commandant behind it, um, the tone from the top. He's made it the, the priority for himself and for the entire Marine Corps. Uh, what the Marine Corps has done to date is that they have addressed many of the accountability um, of uh, issues that the rest of the department is struggling with. They have uh, accountability of their assets, their gears, their people. And now what they're working through is really some of the accounting, technical accounting issues and recreating some of the historical data. Uh, in the meantime, they're also transitioned to a new modern system uh, to sustain that the, the work that um, uh, they have accomplished and all the corrective actions they put in place. How are, is your branch, your service overall, improving its process? It sounds like the Marine Corps is attributing part of its success to the financial management systems and so on. How is that applying to the service more broadly, ma'am? There are actually four key areas that we are focused on uh, in the Department of the Navy. Um, first um, is our system modernization um, and consolidation efforts that's going on. We have many legacy systems that are insecure, expensive to maintain, and they were never designed to withstand audit scrutiny. So uh, we have an all hands on deck effort right now to get out of the legacy system and move into the modern system. Navy has done it 
great job uh, migrating from the legacy system. Um, we are on target um, to get to um, uh, two systems uh, by the end of this year and then uh, one um, uh, at the end of fiscal year 22 for the Navy. And then we're on target to finish up the migration of the Marine Corps to the new system by the end of this year. Uh, the second element that I'd like to highlight is uh, use of data, data analytics um, and the uh, data platform. Uh, we use that as a strategic asset, as we call them. Um, with all the disparate data and the systems using these platform and the analytics, we can highlight the data anomalies and get after the root cause. The third item is our financial statement audit. We've learned a lot. The audit has highlighted areas for efficiencies where we have non-standard processes. So we're really focusing on getting after those uh, corrective action plans, standardize the process. For example, uh, one of the areas that I like to always highlight is that we have many different property systems and we spend a lot of time pulling data out of the system, consolidate, reconcile, manually recording. And as a result of these um, highlights from the audit, we are actually in an effort to consolidate all of those systems into one single and automate that process. And then uh, the last area, which is the most important one, is the workforce. Um, our workforce is our biggest asset that we have. And as we're migrating into a more modern environment, we need to invest in our workforce. So we have efforts ongoing right now to really uh, do a skill set assessment, getting our people out of the data crunching into a data analysis and building uh, appropriate training and de development for our workforce. Well, we just have a couple of minutes left. What is, is there such a thing? as a timeline estimate to getting to uh, unqualified opinions for the three entities inside the Navy? Or is the goal just to continue to make progress year over year? Um, we actually have developed an audit roadmap that brings in all of the various activities together and we put out uh, senior officials um, assigned to them and detailed milestone. Um, and we have many, as I mentioned, we have a very complex environment, many dependencies. And um, if we stick to that roadmap, um, we are targeting another seven or eight years for the Navy to work through some of these issues. And um, But the importance of it is making progress every year, which we have been able to show steady progress every year. And I'm sure that the Marine Corps will come way before that. You mentioned uh, lessons learned, ma'am. What are some of the lessons you would share with your peers in the other services or other parts of the department that are having the same kinds of struggles that you've already worked through? I would say tone from the top is the number one uh, driver behind this. Having our senior leadership commitment and the tone from the top is very, very important. Communication and tight governance. Uh, we need, we can't do this in silo. It requires the entire organization to come together. And so identifying, communicating, setting expectation and having tight governance has been key drivers behind this. And like any other initiative, successful um, transformation, we need to have tight project management. We can't always anticipate um, issues, uh, but we wanna make sure that we highlight the risk and we get after addressing those risks early on. And uh, uh, again, uh, this, is, uh, this is an enterprise level effort. We have many dependencies across the de uh, Department of the Navy and external to us. So working through all of that and collaboration across the Department of Defense to get us to success is key. Ma'am, it's great to have you on the program. Thanks very much for joining me today. Thank you very much, Francis. I appreciate you having me.
Up next, working together across agencies to end homelessness for veterans. Straight ahead on Government Matters, a new partnership working to reach veterans who the agencies haven't reached before. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. The Biden administration is the latest to take on the problem of veteran homelessness. That problem has been a cross-agency priority goal for the Department of Veterans Affairs and the Department of Housing and Urban Development for nearly a decade. Keith Harris is National Director of Clinical Operations for Homelessness Programs at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Richard Cho is Senior Advisor of Housing and Services at the Department of Housing and Urban Development. Gentlemen, welcome. Thanks very much for coming on the program. Uh, Richard, I start with you. How will you be working with your partners at VA to make progress on this cap goal? Well, we've had a longstanding collaboration um, between our agencies and VA, uh, but one of the things that we've uh, has shifted over the last few years is that um, our our leaders, the secretaries of HUD and VA, have not necessarily made ending veteran homelessness a priority that they're directly managing. Uh, that's what we'll be going back to is ensuring that Secretary Fudge um, at HUD and Secretary McDonough at VA will be working directly to manage us, and they've charged us uh, to develop a strategy to begin reducing veteran homelessness once again. Uh, with the ultimate goal of ending veteran homelessness. Keith, welcome and thanks for joining the program. What does this partnership look like from your perspective at VA? I think what Richard just noted is the biggest piece. We've actually worked very closely with HUD for the entire 10 years, as you noted, of this, of this effort so far. Uh, what's been missing recently is that top level involvement of the secretaries, getting them in the room together, talking, uh, meeting with us. And uh, the big thing they bring, and it, this may not be completely obvious at the outset, but um, you can't replace that kind of high level involvement. Uh, when we had that kind of involvement in prior years, uh, we could we could spend months, those of us in the trenches on this could spend months on an issue, uh, go meet with the secretary. The secretary says, who do I need to call? Do I need to call the mayor? Do I need to call the, the city council, the governor, et cetera? And the problem is fixed like that. That's the piece that's really been missing and what I think this, this uh, partnership will bring back. Keith, what is your sense of what the agency has learned over the years about reaching vets who are hard to reach? Uh, I've had discussions on this program and, and uh, off the air uh, with officials in both agencies saying there's just a, a component of this population that we may have tremendous difficulty getting to or may never get to. I think there's two pieces to this. It's such an important question. Um, so the, the first is uh, those that are hard to reach because of uh, doubts, lack of trust, or, or uh, an inability to find them entirely. Maybe they're out in a highly rural area. The answer to that is is a really thorough, effective, compassionate form of outreach, having people who are out there building trust slowly but surely, we call it progressive engagement, uh, and, and giving people the information they need to make a, a, a thoughtful decision. So that's a big piece of it. We have, VA has a lot of really uh, skilled outreach workers and we need to give them the resources uh, they require to do that work. The other part of it, though, is being able to serve those we haven't been able to serve previously. And a, and a big change there is legislation just signed in January has expanded eligibility for one of our most important programs and the program we run most closely with HUD. That's a program called HUD-VASH, uh, where, where HUD provides the housing voucher, VA provides the case management. We've expanded eligibility to the other than honorable 
veterans who are not actually eligible for all of VA health care. So that's another big piece that's close to 15%, we estimate, of the remaining population that will now be able to serve. Richard, uh, with the increase in a program like that, how will you go about scaling? Do you have the capacity that you need to scale uh, a program like that when you get the infusion of money and you get the legislative authority to do so? Yeah, that's a, I mean, this HUD-VASH is a program that we've received um, steady increased appropriations um, for veterans. Um, about 10 years ago, the program was about 10,000 vouchers nationally. We're now at about 100,000, over 100,000 vouchers nationally. Uh, and as Dr. Harris mentioned, uh, we now have the ability to serve veterans who have um, other than honorable discharge some status. Um, and so uh, we have the ability to not only, um, you know, continue to use those vouchers to connect veterans, but now also reach veterans who may not have the honorable discharge status and therefore um, have not been service connected, but who nonetheless still need those wraparound services paired with long-term rental assistance to exit homelessness. A more existential question, I guess, than fact-based, is it possible to establish numbers, numerical goals or metrics in a challenge like this? Richard, I'll start with you. Or, or is it just looking back at some point in time and seeing whether the problem's better than it used to be? I think the longstanding collaboration that we've had with VA is among maybe one of the best examples of government working in a really data-driven fashion to try to uh, um, tackle a, a challenging problem. Uh, we use um, annual data that HUD collects from communities that tracks how many veterans are homeless on any given night, uh, comparing our progress year to year. VA also then tracks um, the number of veterans that are actually exited from homelessness. Um, and it's those metrics um, combined with program-level metrics that we look at for HUD-VASH uh, and for many of uh, VA's other um, homeless assistance programs uh, that enables us to know, you know, are we ha housing enough veterans quickly enough? Um, are, are we trying to reduce the number of veterans uh, who can come, uh, who newly experience homelessness? Those are the kind of key metrics that we look at, reducing inflow into homelessness, increasing exits to uh, and connections to permanent housing. Uh, and, you know, uh, a lot more uh, detailed levels of performance metrics that go into that. Uh, but those are the kind of metrics that we'll be looking at, you know, and what we've seen over the last few years is a trend where fewer veterans who are homeless are getting connected to housing than um, in prior years. We need to get back to that pace of progress. Richard Cho, Keith Harris, thanks very much for joining me. I appreciate your time today. Thanks Thank so you. much for having me. Up next, the number one story of the week. Federal employees weigh in on their jobs and the results might surprise you. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how remote works changing quality of life for federal employees. You're watching 7 News. Now, the number one story of the week, the new numbers from the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey show employees that telework are more engaged than employees that don't. Lots of numbers in the survey improved, even though the government was working through a pandemic. Jeff Neal's former chief human capital officer at the Department of Homeland Security, Terry Gertens, president and CEO of the National Academy of Public Administration. Welcome to both of you. Terry, I start with you. What jumped out at you in the FEVS results this week? Well, Francis, as you said in the intro, the numbers continue to show improvement. That tells me a couple of things. First, that the effort across the government to encourage managers to focus on employee engagement is having an impact. And that really the issues around work-life balance got much better telework, and that certainly contributed to rising support. But this is Public Service Recognition Week, and so I wanted to point out that it's pretty clear that employees who work at agencies that have even bigger missions during the pandemic really felt very positively about the impact that they made. And that comes through the scores. And I think that's what we really ought to highlight because they have such a key role 
the services and programs that are beginning to drive for national security. Jeff, what jumped out at you when you looked at these numbers? Well, Francis, the thing that actually jumped out at me was something in the demographics, and that was that that um, people at the GS 13, 14, and 15 level represent about 20% of the federal workforce, and they represent about 40% of the respondents in the in the survey this year. Uh, the other thing was the the number of supervisors who responded. Uh, supervisors make up about 12% of the federal workforce, and they made up uh, I think about 23% of the respondents in the survey. So that makes me think that the survey uh, may have a more optimistic view of how things are going in the federal government than, than things really are because people at the higher grade levels and in management roles tend to have more positive views of an organization. So, so that was the first thing that, that kind of leapt off the page at me. What would you do with that as a chief human capital officer? How would you parse the numbers then thinking that way about the demographics, Jeff? Uh, I would make certain that uh, in looking at the data that OPM gives me that I'd look at, at groups of grade levels and don't just take the overall agency number and say, okay, this is fantastic, I'm gonna run with this and declare victory and go home. Uh, what they should be doing is looking at the various groups of employees to see how they perceive the agency. In my own experience at DLA was that we found that supervisors and managers just loved the place and sometimes rank and file employees you know, were, were much different in their views. So, so I think they really need to dig into the data and not just look at top line numbers for the agencies. Terry, we have spoken on this program a number of times about telework. Jeff and I have talked about it. You and I have. We've talked about it all together. What do you take away from the telework numbers that came out of the FEBS this year? Well, I think a couple of things. Um, and the numbers show a correlation. And the more that people work, the, the more engaged they are. But I think it also has an impact on the perspective uh, as on, on leadership, right? Because telework forces leaders and managers to communicate a lot more frequently. And so you see that in some of the numbers about how people feel engaged. Leaders are probably checking in with them not only about health and safety, on a much more regular basis about their accomplishment. And so as that builds relationships, employee satisfaction up. We know that and we see that in some of the numbers here. Jeff, as you uh, as, as agencies go through these numbers, what should they be doing with them? You talked a moment ago about digging down into them and, and understanding them for what they potentially uh, really are. How does one go about doing that? How does one go about knowing potentially the unknowable? Well, the, the data does include all this demographic information and uh, to a large degree, it's available to agencies to be able to look at particular geographic locations, to look at different grade levels. Uh, so, that, so they can do a lot of things to, to start digging through the data to find out which groups of employees are most satisfied, which groups of employees are, are least satisfied, and then look at what, what the data tells them about things they could do. You know, pretty clearly, the data says that people like telework, and there was a, a huge benefit of telework. It also showed that federal employees, when there's a challenge, pull together and, and get focused on the mission, which is what we would expect out of federal workers. Um, but I think that the data also tells us that they wanted a lot more support on IT, for example, and they didn't get that. 
And as we move forward with telework becoming more and more, more and more a uh, fixture in the federal government and not something that people will be opposing right and left, uh, we need to make certain that we provide the technological support that they need to be able to work effectively at home, to be able to measure performance of employees at home, and to be able to have them communicating with one another uh, using technology that the, the agency is enabling or, or, or providing for them. So I think that's really important. Terry, did anything in the numbers surprise you? Was there anything that made you say, I didn't think that, I didn't see that coming, I didn't expect that? You know, there, there was one surprise that I think is kind of remarkable, and that is where uh, employees reported their perceptions of customer service delivery. You would have expected with all the upheaval, with shuttered offices, with transition to remote work and loss of workforce, that customer service and um, citizen satisfaction would have gone down. But it only went from the mid-90s to the mid-80s. And so I think, as Jeff was just mentioning, that's a real test to the impact of engaged and effective federal employees and the connection that they felt with their mission. So they were able to support their, their citizens, clients, even in a, a really remarkable and disruptive environment. Jeff, 30 seconds left. Any surprises to you? Uh, biggest surprise to me was that 40% of the respondents were GS 13s, 14s, and 15s. Uh, that's a, a that's number skewed quite a bit to the high grade levels, and I, I'd really like to see the numbers for the lower and mid grade levels. Jeff Neal, Terry Gurton, thanks both very much for coming on the program. Great to have you. Thanks for having us. Don't forget, if you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv, and you get a preview of every show when you sign up for our daily program guide. You text GOVMATTERS to 58671. I'm back in two minutes. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and next Sunday morning at 1030 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Beatrice Haddon. Our director of content is Alan Holmes. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group. You have been listening to the Government Matters podcast, sponsored by Hughes Network Systems. Stay tuned for a brief interview with Tony Bardo of Hughes. Tony Bardo is Assistant Vice President for Government Solutions at Hughes. Tony, it's great to talk to you again. I thought of you the other day because I saw another agency make an award on the Enterprise Infrastructure Solutions contract at General Services Administration. You have been telling me for a long time about how important this contract is. Why is it so important, Tony? It's so important because the agencies have been dealing with 20-year-old network technology um, for 20 years. And, and basically, this is their opportunity to use this important contract to modernize the network, to keep up with constituents who are demanding more digital-centric services. And the government needs the, the network to, uh, to step up to those uh, expectations. This is a long-term contract. How is it built so that when Hughes rolls out something cool, say, five years from now, that 
the agencies will be able to access that. The agencies will be able to leverage new technologies that come down the line during the life of this contract. GSA's got a good plan for that. They've got a plan for the on-ramping of, of services. Uh, frankly, the, the, the current SD-WAN movement is an example of that. SD-WAN did not exist when EIS was awarded. But GSA's been working hard with the agencies and with the primes to add these services. So what's important is that the agencies demand that the, um, that, that the primes offer various kinds of SD-WAN solutions. There are a number of them out there. They need to not just offer their direct example examples of uh, proprietary services, but there are multiple platforms. Agencies should really meet with the primes and say, "Here's what I want. Here's what I want. To, here's where I want to go over the next 10 to 15 years." Time is of the essence, it strikes me, Tony, because uh, there's a countdown clock going here for agencies to get these contracts awarded. Um, if you're just starting this process at the beginning, first of all, shame on you, I guess. But um, secondly, what's the role of the vendor to help uh, uh, an agency move the ball? Well, I think, I think the idea here is to, if you haven't gotten started yet, make sure you're asking the right questions of industry, that you're asking for the right kind of services. If you're still stuck on an RFP or a format that asks for older technology, there are, and, and there are unfortunately, Francis, a number of RFPs and fair opportunities out there that have asked for the old stuff. And it's it's like, the, the to, to some extent, I'm, I'm, I'm advocating for timeline be damned. You ought to stop, stop the presses, start over again and recast the requirement to reflect what's, what's needed, uh, what agencies should expect from their networks today. We just have uh, 20 seconds left, Tony. You have, you're casting this as an opportunity for agencies to transform the way they do things and not just write a new contract, it sounds like. Oh, absolutely. It's, it's, it's critical. It's the right time. The technology is very, very fresh and can carry the agencies for a long time forward. Tony Bardo of Hughes, great to talk to you, my friend. Thank you, Francis.